Welcome to Change My Mind. Over 80% of people think we're becoming more divided. But does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford in California and founder of the Depolarization Project. Hosting alongside me today is Alex Chesterfield, a conservative counsellor and behavioural insight expert. Hi Ali, I am really looking forward to today's guest. He's changed his mind on something so significant and really taboo, uh, which I think we've uncovered through our interviews and research so far. It's actually really uncommon. So I'm really keen to hear his story and how and why he, he, he got to change his mind. Uh, me too, Alex. I, I can't wait to hear him. Laura Osborne, our resident corporate affairs expert, isn't here today because she's got a big new job as corporate affairs director at London First, the voice of business in London. She'll be back next week and a huge congrats to her. But as Alex said, today's podcast involves someone who's been through a really dramatic change. Brought up in a white nationalist family in Florida, Derek Black's father founded the virulently racist website Stormfront. His godfather is David Duke, the former grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Yet, when Derek left to go to college, he gradually changed his mind, coming to renounce his former views and speak out critically against them. His story has been told by the Washington Post journalist Eli Saslow in his recently published book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Derek, welcome to the show. You're now at the University of Chicago studying for a PhD in medieval history. I'd really like to begin by asking what brought you there? Well, um, in college where most of the dramatic things that people tend to ask me about happened, I showed up and I wanted to study the Middle Ages because I thought the Middle Ages were a period that people wouldn't question me and would not um, want to talk about the present because my life was so deeply embedded in controversial things now or, or then. So I started studying the Middle Ages. And then after, after I left college and had all the uh, dramatic change of face and the uh, traumatic experience of, you know, I guess, changing my mind, I ended up going to grad school to study, study continue studying middle medieval history. And about uh, a few years ago, ended up progressing to the PhD level at the University of Chicago, where I currently reside. Well, uh, yeah, congratulations, by the way. It's, that's no mean feat. But I guess that you've, you started to touch on it already in about your early life in Florida. Could you tell us a little bit about what that involved and maybe a typical day? Maybe about your backstory almost. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I grew up within the leadership family of the white nationalist movement. And we were in South Florida because my mom's family had lived there for generations. They, they moved down there when, before electricity and uh, when the, the railroad first opened because Florida was a sort of pioneer area in the U.S. at the early 20th century. So I ended up growing up there, even though my dad was from Alabama. And he founded the first white nationalist website and became, became the largest white nationalist community online about the same time I was born. Uh, so, so I essentially grew up with people who were leading the white nationalist movement coming over to the house for Christmas parties or uh, us going over to conferences around the country and attending them where professors would stand up and say things that sounded very scientific about the differences between the races and people would make these uh, 
academic sounding conferences where they'd talk about the importance of white nationalist politics. And I was always, from the time I was, before I could even remember, I, I was always right in the middle of it. And I got more, more and more convinced that I wanted to be involved too, and not just attend like most of the other kids did. When, when did you realize, Derek, that other people didn't think the same way as you or necessarily hold the same beliefs? I think that was always clear. Uh, because remember, I, I grew up in South Florida, which is extremely diverse, and it is the home for lots of retired Jewish people. It is the home of lots of retired people from around the country. I, I went to school for you know mo- all of my elementary school before I was homeschooled, and living in South Florida, it was it was always really clear that we had belief systems that were widely condemned. And I, and I also grew up mm-hmm. with major media coming over to the house and it was never friendly. So, so I don't think it was such a matter of realizing that my family believed things that were widely unpopular and condemned and, um, and that we had to, uh, we had to advocate in a very specific way because of that. It was more of trying to figure out what that meant for me and what spaces I should talk about it and what spaces I should not talk about it. And, um, basically trying to figure out how these different parts of my life fit together. What was it like at school? Um, did, you have fr- did you have friends at school? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, went, I went to the public school system up until third grade. Uh, mm. So that's also part of my story is that after third grade, I was homeschooled. And so that's engaging in the homeschooled community in, in Florida is slightly different from the public school community. But I always approached it in the way that I just didn't bring it up and people mm. would every now and then find out, you know, quite frequently. Cause I was, I was, I started doing major media myself, but I didn't like to talk about it. Not necessarily mm. because I was uh, you know, ashamed of it, but because it was just kind of, it felt to me like a no win situation. You know, I'm like 13 or 14 years old and uh, volunteering or being involved in some academic organization. And then somebody says, Oh, I saw, you and your family talking about white nationalism on HBO last night. And there's just nowhere that I was going to go with that. So my, my strategy was always just to say, uh, I don't really want to talk about that and try to make, mm. make these very hard lines between one part of my life that was deeply involved in my family's unusual activism and the other part of my life that was all of my other interests and all of my other hobbies. Mm. And I think I'm just going to do a little bit of British American translation here. So a public school in America is a state school in, in, uh, is what we would call a state school. A British public school is one of the elite fee paying schools that Prince William went Uh. to just to confuse (laughs) things slightly. Um, But I wanted to to carry on from where I guess Alex was and looking a little bit at your childhood Um, and you know, what, what was the reaction of, I say your friends at school or where you did interact with people? Did you, did you talk about things that just weren't white nationalism? Because if you shut down on that. Right. I, I mean, I had always had lots of interests. I kind of formed my own self-image as somebody who had 90% of my interests were not white nationalism and that I thought it was unfair that people wanted to characterize me as uh, being specifically that. You know, and, and to be fair, this is me as an adolescent. I was trying to formulate my identity. And part of that was, mm. I think my family's right, obviously, because they're brilliant. Uh, and so if I, as a you know, 14, 15 year old, believe that they're right and want to get involved in it, I, I also wanted to be 
competing in the science fair and uh, having having hobbies and having uh, social outings and, and those two things didn't necessarily fit together. And did it did that exposure? I guess to, did you lead? Did it lead to anybody that you talked to becoming more curious or more supportive of your views, or, or having I suppose either empathy or sympathy with the white nationalist views that you were espousing at the, at the time? No, I really tried to keep it completely separate. I, I wouldn't engage on it. If if uh, somebody in one of these other contexts wanted to talk about it, I just wouldn't. Uh, I would say that it's not not something I'd like to talk about, and I just sort of stonewall. And so, so all those years, I interacted with lots of diverse people. It wasn't that I hadn't had a friend mm. who was Jewish or a person of color. It was that I never was willing to engage on it. Sometimes they didn't even know my family's background. Uh, and then when they did, I just wouldn't discuss it. And for the most part, people were willing to put it aside and say, okay, let's talk about something else. Uh, that's interesting. So, so I, that, yeah, that's my experience. It was just not, it wasn't something where I had to ever actually square the circle on what it would mean that I'm friends with somebody who my family's ideology says doesn't belong here. And, and that, and I was going to say, did it affect your your friendship? So when you when you said a moment ago, when people found out, obviously you, you know you, you tried to keep it quite private. But when people did find out, uh, they, it seemed what you were saying that they were quite willing to talk about the ninety percent of your life that that wasn't about the beliefs that you held. Mm-hmm. So, so did it did it change your 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 friendships or in any way when when people did find out? Um, I mean, I'm sure it affected it. But mm-hmm. I was already in a situation where I was homeschooled and spending my days not necessarily in any sort of normal structure of education. I got to build up my own schedule and I would spend a, an entire day working at the local science museum to you know, help them revamp. And then I'm hanging out with people in that context, or mm-hmm. I was a member of a historical reenactment group, or I was taking yeah. a classes. So, so the fact that I was in this very flexible situation uh, where I dealt with many people in different situations, I, I'm sure it affected my friendships, but it was not, it, it wasn't something I actually had to deal with in any dramatic way. I just wanted to take you forwards from, from school to, um, to college or university, as we'd call it. And uh, when you went there and, and you were saying that you decided to look at studying um, medieval history, how did you find that experience? Florida is a state with a large number of public universities, and it also had the lowest in-state tuition of, uh, or at least one of the lowest of any uh, any state. And so I knew I had to stay stay within Florida, and the college I ended up going to was uh, was the designated honors college of the, the state university system. And so it just sort of made sense because I wanted to get a good education. And they had a program in history that was really appealing to me. And so, so people frequently ask, why did I go to this very small, very leftist sort of anarchist uh, uh, school? And, and the answer is because it made the most sense. Yeah, it was sort of mundane. And how did your, you know, you talked um, elsewhere about your activism continuing when you were there and, and continuing to host a radio show with your dad. How did your friends end up uncovering sort of that activity and how did they react to it? Right. By the time I showed up at, at university, I had gotten 
quite involved in in helping the white nationalist movement myself. I, I ran a 24-hour radio network on my dad's website. I, I had run for local office and, and won in South Florida. Uh, I'd gotten a lot of publicity around that. And so I, I spent the first semester after having done all these things, already having plenty of news coverage around me. I spent the first semester without anyone happening to Google my name. And so, so I made lots of friends and I talked to people and I sort of maintained that, that habit of trying to have two parts of my life that don't ever touch each other. And it just became very clear over that time that eventually this is going to become public and that people are not going to react in the same way that they had prior, that they're not going to just say, okay, let's talk about something else because this is such a politically active campus, because it's college, because people are older. Uh, it just became very clear that once this does become public and the students are aware of it, it's going to be an extreme moment of separation and breaking. And uh, you know, I, I got one semester in before that happened. And Ali, can I actually, it's probably worth clarifying for listeners, what were some of the, I guess, what were some of the main beliefs that, that you held? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the white, the white nationalist movement in the United States and also in Europe, it, it, mm. it's fairly, fairly uh, international ties even to this day, has these fundamental beliefs that, that race is biological and that it predicts behavior and criminality. Uh, they, mm. they falsely use IQ statistics and they misrepresent crime statistics to try to say that this is something predictive because of race. Uh, and then, the, and then beyond that, I think the surprising part to most people who don't follow it is that it's just deeply anti-Semitic. That it's mm. it's almost more concerned with uh, this conspiracy theory about Jews controlling the world than it is about I don't know what I guess what you could kind of call normal racism. Uh, they mm. end up talking about anti-Semitism, and that th- that that was the worldview that I that I grew up with and that I showed up at college having. And, and did anyone try to change your mind when you were at, at college, especially when they found you know, they might have Googled you or those or said those those two worlds, those two quite separate worlds became one? Yeah, it, it came out while I was studying abroad for the second semester. So I wasn't there immediately. And there was a student forum that every every student was automatically opted into. And they had this multi thousand page thread discussing me. You know, both people who I had had gotten to know while I was there, and then all these other people who I didn't on this 800-person campus went on. Wow. It went on for days and days, and then I I came back that fall, and the main reaction, which looking back on, I think is actually a quite effective thing to do, was ostracism, and I and mm-hmm. when people look at my story, they end up thinking about the people who invited me to dinner and who carefully talked me through my beliefs and that's it's obviously essential but the main reaction of the campus was i think the quite effective reaction of being clear that they condemned white supremacy that they condemned Mm. white nationalism they they condemned me and my family for advocating it uh and so that that's basically what i arrived back to school you know uh anticipating and that's that's why when i started taking classes again it was just this sort of visceral pressure every time I'd walk into a room of people looking my way or giving me the middle finger or something. And how did that feel? How did that make you feel? Uh, I think you can imagine it was uh, socially very awkward and uncomfortable. And I, I spent, tried to spend as much time as I could off campus. And, uh, mm. and I, I was pretty effective at that. I got a special waiver so that I wouldn't have to live in the dorms. Uh, that first semester, I would just come to campus for class or for 
extra academic sessions or something. And then I, I would try to go back to my off-campus apartment. And I, I kind of anticipated that that's how that would continue until mm. I got this invitation to a, a weekly Shabbat dinner who was hosted by a guy who had, who had lived across from me during that semester that I, that I was on campus before anyone knew mm. my background. And just before we go to that dinner, and I know you've talked about it a sure. bit before with other people, did you have any teachers who were Jewish or weren't white in that time and, and or classmates? And did they interact with you any particularly differently or was there, there pressure in particular from that? Yeah, uh, yes to both. Uh, had professors who were people of color who were, some some of them were teaching classes on uh, Jewish scripture or uh, Jewish life in modern Europe. I took a class on German multiculturalism that was taught by a woman of color, and the, that was clearly quite tense at times. Uh, and and the, these are the sort of classes I was taking and people I was interacting with. And I, I guess, looking back on it, I think it's one of the one of the earliest things was the fact that I had gotten to know people in a a different way while I was there. Who, when I saw them posting saying that they that, that my beliefs were making their lives worse and that what I was advocating was not some sort of impartial uh, sort of intellectual discussion, but it was something that actively was hurting them and their, the lives of their families, that, that it meant something different because they were peers in a campus that was away from home for the first time. Uh, I, I guess I didn't recognize that at the time, but looking back, it's clearly very influential. And you talked about this invitation to a Shabbat dinner from mm-hmm. a former um, dorm mate. Um, what, how was that extended and how, how did it make you feel? We, Matthew, uh, who hosted the dinners, and I already had each other's cell phone numbers, which I think is probably important that this mm-hmm. is something that I, I've talked about this experience with other people before. And I, I kind of want to make it clear that we knew each other because if you're trying to recreate this experience, I think that calling somebody out of the blue who is a Nazi or whatever, you know, whatever the situation is, is not mm. necessarily going to be as effective as Matthew and I were friends. There, there mm. was some sort of connection there. There was some reason why I would go talk to him and we had gotten to know each other prior, prior to all the controversy on campus. So you, so you had some, some connection. And, mm. and can, can you describe, describe what happened at, at the dinner? Yeah, he... He invited me and he had been hosting them for several weeks, uh, actually several months before I had gotten to them. And he had various students, but he was the only Orthodox Jewish student on campus. So most of the people who were attending his dinners were some other religion or they were secular or uh, they were some form of Christian. And, And it was not, it was as much a community dinner as it was anything else. And so I came to that. And the first one that I attended, lots of people didn't come because they did not want to be at the same dinner as me. And they disagree with Matthew's decision to invite me. But mm. several people did. They, there were several people I knew. And that first dinner, we did not talk about white nationalism. We did not talk about my political uh, beliefs, par- partly yeah. because I think I had honed the ability of making it very clear that I didn't want to talk about that, you know, from, from earlier in my life. And I don't think they expected that, but that's, that's just, that's, that's what happened. And then when I came back the next week, we did the same thing. And that continued for months where we would talk about lots of things at these dinners and lots of people started trickling back once it was clear that I was just going to keep attending these, these Shabbat dinners. 
and white nationalism at the dinner itself never actually came up. So you're invited to these dinners, people were aware of your of your beliefs and even of your, you know, your reputation, but they they never they you never actually directly discuss and no one actually ever asked you about your about your beliefs. Not not at the dinners no. themselves. Well, it, it becomes okay. th- there's more to the story in that people at the dinners did start taking me aside. And then there's one person in particular who who I I guess to be fully fully transparent put cards on the table is now my significant other but we we uh ah. start at the time that was definitely not the direction we thought that was going and she mm. initially was one of the people who didn't come to the dinners she would stop attending because she didn't agree she 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 signed on to the idea that ostracism is the right thing because that is asserting that you stand on the side of students of color that you stand on the side of people who are harmed by white nationalism and that attending a dinner like that or inviting me to the dinner was was breaking ranks and she Mm. was also one of the people who kept who started coming back after a while because she because she liked the shabbat dinners and uh she was definitely the main person who started having these conversations aside from the dinners saying initially could you just explain to me what what these beliefs are because they don't really seem to square with your personality otherwise and then after that Mm. trying to dismantle what the evidence was for it I was going to say, what did she say to you when she took you aside that time? Yeah. Uh, and initially, it was somewhat somewhat of an accident. We ended up talking and hanging out. It was a small school. We, For instance, we ended up on a friend's boat because he was sailing in the lake that adjoined the campus, and neither of us knew we were both going to end up on that boat together. And we started talking at that point, and we had discussions like that for a while for at least a few weeks before before she said this is strange that we're not talking about this incredibly controversial and terrible belief system that you have and uh her her first question when it was can we talk about it and then the second one was could you explain to me what you believe and what why you believe it and that, that's that's where it began. It was me trying to explain for the first time, it turned out what I believed to somebody who didn't believe it, who was not a journalist or somebody debating me on a stage or, or something like that. It was this first time that I ended up in a quiet situation with somebody who I was genuinely friends with, who mm. really disagreed with all the core tenets of my belief system, but who also was curious why I believed it and how I could justify it. So was so was it was your um, I guess I'm trying to understand. So what 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 did eventually change your mind? Was it was it quite a, a slow process, or was there a a particular conversation with your your now significant other that was the catalyst to you changing your mind, changing your beliefs for, for good? Right. I, the the real answer is that it's lots of different things, but there there were mm. a few specific moments that stand out. Um, mm. On on one hand, there there's a it's a handful of pieces of evidence that white nationalists think is like forbidden science. Uh, the, the way they talk about IQ differences on average between racial groups, or the way they talk about crime statistics, they they will discuss it among themselves as if they have some secret information that nobody in the mainstream wants to talk about. But my discussions uh, with Allison, who had taken me aside were rooted in the fact that statistics are being misused here, that this uh, 
discussion of supposed IQ differences is just an abuse of statistics. There are, there are the, the average difference is already insignificant and it makes a lot more sense to talk about education or standardized tests or poverty. And these sort of explanations that people give when they're being rational about society make a lot more sense. And therefore the explanations that white nationals are trying to use for their, for their worldview is just stupid. Uh, that was key. But there was also as aspects where she would point out that it's very uncomfortable that I'm attending these Shabbat dinners and that I'm very, very good friends with uh, people who are the children of Hispanic immigrants or people who are Jewish or people who are, who are black and being close friends with them and thinking that it's fine to be friends, but then also participating in an ideology that says that they don't quite fit in America, that, mm. that how exactly could I maintain some sort of idea that this is just a discussion, this is some sort of um, intellectual discourse when it's so clearly is negatively it's, it's like at, at the very best it's just making them feel terrible at the you know uh, yeah. and and the worst case is this is an ideology that if it were ever successful would hurt the lives of millions of people and what are those millions of people but the friends and family and and neighbors of your friends like the, those yeah. those sort of things didn't happen in any one conversation but they built up over about two years that's so interesting so so one of our other guests um on on change my mind is a, a professor of cognitive neuroscience and in our interview she talks about um the the ways that or the tactics that people use to change minds and, and what tends to work and what doesn't from a from a scientific basis and um her i guess her main thesis or her main position is that actually using statistics and facts rarely works but what does often work is appealing to uh, emotion and it sounds it sounds mm -hmm. like from what you're saying that that actually both of those things so both the the hard science that 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 clearly suggested the white nationalist movements the the science that they were using was was actually wrong but also that personal moment so being able to see or being a, be, being around the people that would be affected if those mm -hmm. beliefs was coming to practice seemed to also have an effect is that is that a fair reflection or or would you say yeah. it was you felt like it was it was more the science or it was more the I, I think it's uh, completely. I think it's completely fair, and I've and I've thought about yeah. this since then, and I, I've you know, read read a lot of the research around how my experience kind of fits into a model of, mm. of having contact with other people and forming close connections mm. that you. The connection, to say, connection, yeah, the commonality, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I, I I think it's completely accurate to say if you, if you need to simplify what my experience was, it was a change of community that I had always identified my family and the wider network of white nationalists is the most important community to me. And I didn't recognize that it would have any impact on me to go away to college because I, 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 I rationalized that we had all the facts on our side. And it was also the case that I had somewhat grown up online. So the people who I thought were the most important, who were uh, my family's fellow activists and, uh, you know, in this broader sense of threatened white people, uh, that that community was what was important to me. But then spending time on this college campus made me face the fact that there's all these people who are threatened by what they are doing and what I was advocating, who I had gotten to know, who I felt some ways responsible for for helping out for their well-being, mm -hmm. that I, I could pass them in the hall and ask them what 
what their plans for the summer were, what internship they hope to get and genuinely care about that. And that, that, that meant that they, they mattered too, and that it mm. was not possible to make them be an abstract group of people who are not, you know, not, not as real as the community I thought I identified with. So, so, so mm. while I identified myself as somebody who wanted to be rooted in facts and I did engage with uh you know whether my statistics were wrong i think the most important thing is the fact that i was in a different space dealing with different people than than the people who i had always thought were the ones that mattered and i just mm. wondered derek um some of the people that you talked about that you were in that same space as were those who i guess you probably had hurt or upset or wounded in in some way quite badly with some of the things mm-hmm. that you were, were saying which were you know pretty horrific Um, and they were the ones that had to be generous and keep reaching out to you and interact and I guess how how does that make you feel on reflection that you'd hurt them but they were still the ones who had to do some of the outreach yeah I I think it's completely unfair and it's also remarkable to me that they did that that they they lived in a world where they there is there is genuine oppression against their groups. Like it is genuinely discriminatory. Uh, they live in a genuinely discriminatory situation where being a member of the group that they are a member of uh, could mean that they uh, don't get good housing or that their family is uh, discriminated against in hiring. That they face these personal microaggressions day after day, and then I was showing up as the representative of the only group in America that was completely unapologetic about that and that their reaction was to invite me to dinner and uh, try to try to talk to me about it is amazing to me. And that, that's also mm. going back to earlier in the conversation where I say that the main reaction on campus was ostracism. I, and I yeah. thought that made sense was because whether you are a white student living on campus at that time or a person of color or some some group that is being marginalized by what my family and what I was advocating, the appropriate reaction is to stand up for the people who are being harmed by that. And so I I really want to make sure that people don't hear the part about ostracism on campus and hear that as something that was ineffective or incorrect, because I think that's that's the role that everyone can play, because in some way it is protecting people who are already being harmed and not, not prioritizing the people who are doing the harm. Yeah, and it sounds like actually being a bit lonely and on your it sounds like it was a lonely time, that gave you the space for reflection and to think as well. Do you think is that fair and was that important? Yeah, I think it was essential. I don't know how you always recreate that because it's also very true that being rejected by a community is a hurtful. Yeah, it's it's also a, a path to to uh, retreat from that community and to become mm. even more involved in in what you know already. So it's it's a careful balancing act. But I do think that that the idea that the people who uh, matter in your life in whatever way are speaking quite loudly that what you're doing is hurtful and harmful and stupid and incorrect and in whatever other adjectives, that's an essential process in just being a person walking around day to day. And so the idea that when we face something that's especially problematic, that we uh, try to be very quiet and not criticize it seems very counterproductive to me. You've been very critical of your former views there. How do your family feel about the journey that that you've been on, if it's okay to talk about them? 
uh, yeah, they they don't like it at all, and it's it's still a source of enormous tension. And when I first renounced the white nationalist movement, I guess six or maybe seven years ago, right after college, it, it was this moment where it wasn't clear whether we would be able to speak anymore. It was just this devastating few days of back and forth phone calls, and all the years since then have been just trying to carefully keep some sort of connection and, and prioritize having a connection between family, even if the most important thing in their life is something that I'm now opposed to. Uh, I think the the closest parallel I've, I've encountered are people who leave religious communities. E- even though my parents were, are atheists, it feels a little bit like leaving the fold in that sense. Have you tried to change some of your, well, your family or your, your friends' Um, views since you change your own mind? Uh, in the sense that when I am visiting, if somebody says something that I know to be incorrect, or I think I have a good, a good response to or a good criticism of, I, I won't hesitate to say that, but I, I do not know of people in my family who have changed their minds because of that. And I, I think to some extent they've become a lot more firm in their belief in white nationalism because mm-hmm. I left, because it was, I don't know, maybe threatening that that I could decide that this what we were doing was wrong is you know, sort of a, an insecure situation to be in. So, so if anything, I think some of my family members have become more devoted than they were before. And I think, mm. unfortunately, that's really typical what you say, that mm. sometimes when people attack their group or even just criticize or leave, it makes those behind hold on even tighter. And I just wanted to pick up on, on something, Alex. Do you get contacted by other people who are thinking of leaving the movement? Do they, do they seek out talking to you now at all? Does that happen? It hasn't happened directly. It's, uh, it's happened indirectly a few times where somebody has contacted someone else to serve as a, a mediator between me and them and would write a few emails. But for the most part, that has not been the case. Um, and I guess it's also maybe important to think about the fact that I, the, the circles of the white nationalist movement that I grew up in are, for the most part, the leadership. The, the most public people, the people who are out giving interviews whenever there's a rally. There are people who organize Charlottesville. And I think that's also the group that is the least likely to at least publicly backtrack, that, that has the most at stake to uh, mm. say that they're questioning it, or, or I guess on even some level to even question it. If your life is so much bound up with being a public white nationalist and that you're you feel constantly attacked. I think it's that's that's the least likely group to uh, to start wondering whether it's okay if they uh, stop doing this. And just you you mentioned Charlottesville. Obviously, President Trump immediately afterwards made some fairly controversial, to put it mildly, comments about how both sides were at, at fault. I mean, do you have any? What was your take on that at the time? And and do you have any reflections on it in the aftermath? Yeah, I, I mean, at the time it was shocking, I think, like it was to most people because white nationalism is so so easily condemned by just about anyone at any level. And that, that's always been my experience being involved in events since I was a little child, that it was just part of the expectation was that the mayor or the governor or whatever local political leader would condemn the, condemn the event. And so the president 
who had already been accused of being a, a white nationalist sympathizer getting up after this very public internationally covered white nationalist rally and uh, being sort of ambivalent about it was was momentous and i I know they they regarded it as the closest thing he could give to praise of their movement. I guess I was going to I was going to say Ali or um, I guess kind of question Derek is how um, yeah there are many parallels with with your beliefs uh, your you know previous beliefs on on race with many of the other divides that we see today whether it's gender or age or in the UK's situation leave versus remain mm-hmm. how 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 can we get how can we get um over this how can we how can we bring people together <laughs> it's hard um <laughs> and i and i've not on that level i'm not positive whether whether my example is the is the right model or not mm. uh, and 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 you you'd think i'd have a better answer at this point that there is there is the answer that exposure contact connection to uh, a group that one is polarized against or has some form of hatred or a misconception towards whether if we're talking about hatred of immigrants or something mm-hmm. uh, it, it's well documented in research that uh, repeated exposure in uh, fairly controlled situations is an effective way to counter that because you end up seeing the humanity and the people and they're no longer an idea but mm-hmm. that's not easily scalable right? as they say like in tech it's not it's not always so easy to figure out how to do that on a large scale and so the answers become the, the only answer i think i've come up with is that if if my if what happened to me is something that we want to try to uh, enact in other parts of our life we all have different points of contact with a person uh, mm-hmm. whether whether it's just a family member uh, or whether whether you have some big platform, we all have some different point of contact, and and I think the important thing is just never shirking that responsibility because there's no person who's unimportant to talk to. There's no there's no interaction that you can fully see the consequences down the road. That if you lead with your values and try to be understanding, but also quite forceful when something is inhumane, I, I think that that has um, that has an impact but that i also recognize that's not so satisfying because it doesn't say how do you fix the situation it doesn't have an easy fix this one and i no. guess Derek, I, I wanted to ask uh, you know some of the people who I, I guess i would say you may disagree completely with this um analysis but some of the people who were really involved in i would say fueling the white nationalist movement online in the US have now started to come to Europe and to spend mm-hmm. quite large amounts of money in Europe doing that activity. And I wondered mm-hmm. from your vantage point, if you had any tips for people trying to counteract that. Right. Uh, in a lot of ways, the the situation with the European white nationalism, I think, is is more similar to the the way it the way the belief system and the way it's it's organized in the United States. I think it's more similar to the United States than we might expect because it's a it's a movement that's quite internationally connected. Even as a teenage white nationalist, I I went to Britain, I went to Germany, I went to France, and there was always far right white nationalist political parties who would meet me at the airport and who I could stay with. Uh, I was 
close to a lot of the leadership of the British National Party in the early 2000s, who were explicitly white nationalists and had a lot of political success at that point. And it's clear that it has become more politically potent even than it was then. And I guess in some ways it's slightly changed forms, but I don't know, I guess the, the, uh, the same, the same, the same advice that I gave, that I just gave is that we can't be silent in regards to that. We can't, we can't look at um, an anti-immigrant political party or um political rhetoric from mainstream figures that is racist, that is working on white supremacist ideas, and, and then not speak out against it. We all have a responsibility to make it very clear that I, I believe the vast majority of people do not want to live in a society that is fueled by white supremacist ideas, and yet increasingly these are the things that are motivating at least a minority of the political constituencies in, in the West. It, we, we have a responsibility to identify that and to speak out against it in whatever ways we can. And I guess the frightening part is that that doesn't necessarily stop it. Yeah, which is, it's frankly, yeah, it is terrifying. And clearly, you know, it's, it's easier for people to connect with each other in the 21st century than it probably has been at any other point in history, you know, mm. um, to and, amplify and then, these messages. Somewhat depressing if we use that connection to create... Um, a movement for xenophobia or hate. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, well, it's not what the early technologists expected. No, and it's, it's interesting. That. Yeah, that's exactly what Peter Gabriel was saying in his podcast that you know he really invested and loved the internet and now has lost his faith in it as a tool that's good for democracy or for society. Really, um, mm-hmm. for yeah, exactly think, the reasons. Think of my experience though. My my dad created the first white nationalist website in uh, 1995, and before that, it existed as a a dial-in bulletin board before the web was was popular and so my family is key to bringing white nationalism onto the internet at the the beginning of it and so watching that grow over the decades and then watching how it's changed is extremely depressing because it's not you can't put the genie back in the bottle i think most of our guests have brought up the the downside of the internet in the context of polarization Derek, you began this with talking about the role of professors in giving credibility to white nationalist arguments with pretty bogus research. Um, you're now in academia yourself. How do you feel about what those professors did? And what do you think academia could and should do in response to that? Uh, the professors who advocated white nationalism, for the most part, are effectively called out that there's very few who maintain their positions for too many years uh, after being publicly involved in white nationalist groups. And that was true throughout the 90s and the 2000s. And as far as I know, I think it's still true that we're, we're as a society in the United States, and I think in European universities, we're still quite good at identifying people who are explicit white supremacists and, and then drumming them out of the academy or media or what, whatever position of power. But... I think the more insidious thing is that this 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 sort of goes under unnoticed that there are lots of racist assumptions not just in you know anywhere in society but within within academia as well and I think that their academics have also a major role to play in using their expertise using their credibility uh, and using the fact that they have specialized in whatever subject to 
speak publicly. I, I think that's my biggest criticism of academia in general is that it's it's a little bit too myopic and too often professors end up just talking to each other and not even talking to other fields or questioning the ways that they are they are contributing to some of the worst parts of society that uh, I think the academic world, maybe it's just because I, I live in it, but I feel like it has a responsibility to step up in, in these times and speak out and not, not quite be so neutral. And uh, I, I'm trying to figure out how my role in that. I'll finish a history PhD in a couple of years and I'm I'm in the midst of making it be a little bit more culturally relevant because I got into medieval medieval studies because I wanted no one to ever ask me about the present. And then I, mm. the last few years, I've realized that that's, that's either cowardly or, or counterproductive. And so I'm trying to figure out a, a, his, a study of history that maybe looks at um, medieval contributions to the creation of race and, and whiteness and, and the way nationalism embraced racism in the, uh, in the early colonial periods. So something that fits into what I've studied, but which I can also speak out publicly and try to use that expertise to help. And so I guess that's all I can say about it. I, I've always gravitated to universities and universities are not uh, universally anti-racist. There's, there's plenty of racist ideas bouncing around in universities. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, listeners, if you would like to find out more about Derek's story, then Washington Post journalist Eli Saslow's book about him called Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, is out now on both sides of the Atlantic. Next week, we will be joined by a former government minister who tells us about how she changed the minds of her colleagues and how they forced her to challenge her own stereotypes. It's a cracker. Um, if you would like to find out more about us, then you can visit www.depolarizationproject.com or visit us on Twitter at Depol Project. Uh, we'd love to know what you have changed your mind about. Finally, we'd like to thank you, uh, our listeners, our producer, Caroline Crampton, and Kevin McLeod, whose Dreams Become Real is our music. <laughs>